0: New York, the East Coast, we've all been through some really tough times. We've all been through 9-11. We went through the financial crisis. You know, we've all had, you know, adverse events. And the one thing i take from those is, hey, we made it. Craft brewers and, you know, bar and restaurant owners are resilient people. None of us would be in these businesses if we weren't tough, if we weren't resilient, you know, if we didn't have a, a deep well of passion to draw on in difficult times.
1: Welcome to Hospitality and Politics, powered by the New York City Hospitality Alliance. I am your host, Andrew Riggi, and I am very excited to be joined by two gentlemen. We were just already having a good discussion even before the formal discussion starts. Mr. Jim Cook, the Founder and chairman of the Boston Beer Company, and of course Sam Calagione from Dogfish Head Craft Brewery. He is a co-founder. Well, thank you for joining me today. Pleasure, Pleasure to be here. All right. Well, so you know, one of the things we always need to ask, um, and I'm always interested in, is like the back story about how people start companies. And I know these are often the subjects of very long books, and we don't have time for a whole entire uh, Audible book right now. But I'd love kind of a brief introduction into why don't we start first uh, with you, Jim, and then go to Sam about just a quick history of uh, the company, how it came about, and uh, where you are now today.
0: Sure. Um, I guess uh, my story starts a, a long time ago, I'm the sixth oldest son in a row in my family to be a brewer. So beer's kind of in my blood. Um, about a five. so uh, I'm legal to broadcast here. But uh, so I, the beer's always been a part of my life. My dad was a brewmaster, and he got out of the beer business, you know, well, 60 years ago, as as the industry was consolidating, and never wanted me to go back into it. And I had a, a good job. And then I guess this was 1983, 84, before, you know, craft beer had even, you know, been invented when there were a, a handful of sort of lunatics, uh, scattered around the country that thought starting a small brewery would be a viable business. Uh, and, you know, so I, I said, well, if anybody's going to do it, I, I want to be, uh, one of the pioneers. And, you know, the whole company was two people when I started, and we've, you know, we've had lots of adventures uh, over the last 36 years, but that's how it started.
1: Very nice. And what about the name? I mean, people are familiar with the Sam Adams. Why, why was that the choice with actually with the beer?
0: Well, you know, it wasn't like any great uh, process or anything like I said, you know, the, the company was nothing. I mean, it was just me at first. And so I thought of lots of different names. I'd write them down. I had all these lists. Um, a friend of mine said, you know, you, you should hire somebody who's good at that. Uh, uh, I didn't have much money, so I hired this uh, three ex-bartenders, actually, who had started their own ad agency. And they came up with what they thought was going to be the killer name for yeah. my new beer. Uh, and they, you know, did a little presentation with a drum roll. And Jim, the name for your new beer is going to be Sacred Cod. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. that was the reaction I had. It was like, what? Yeah, Sacred cow? No, no, Sacred Cod. I'm just, yeah. not naming my beer after a stinky fish. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I had a couple of other plan Bs uh and it finally came down to two different names uh i kind of flipped the coin and it came up sam adams right. uh, so not a lot of science i
1: like you know what sometimes nice and simple It's just the way things go what about you sam i mean i i've heard i i love the name but talk a little bit about the history too and then maybe you could lead into uh into
2: the name Sure, I guess we did choose to name our, our brand after a stinky fish, so we should we should have had a different uh, ad campaign than than Jim's coming out.
1: But um, you know, yeah. yours has a little bit more of a ring to it, I think. That uh, you know, the, the con.
2: <laughs> yeah. So, and I, I want to apologize to the audience for the background noise. I'd rather be having a sixty minute IPA, but instead I'm going sixty miles an hour. Uh, so I apologize for the background noise. I'm not driving, Mariah, my wife is. But I'll just start by saying that our The the conception of our brand and our brewery started in your fine city, New York City, uh, where I was born. I actually uh, grew up uh, in Western Mass, but was born in Queens. And I moved back to New York City the day after I got out of college. And like anyone in college, I just drank whatever was the cheapest beer. And it wasn't until I got to New York and was taking some writing classes at Columbia, working at a bar on the Upper West Side. Head beers like Sam Adams, like Chimay, like Sierra. And I fell in love with good beer and shifted gears instead of trying to pursue a, a career in creative writing and trying to write the great American novel. I said, uh, you know, maybe I'll try and create the great American beer recipe. And my inspiration was really first-gen, you know, American uh, food um, uh, champions like Alice Waters and James Beard. Who you know said, "Let's stop genuflecting to European culinary traditions. We grow beautiful ingredients here in America. Let's create our own culinary traditions." And so my goal is to be the first commercial beer brand in America uh, committed to brewing the majority of our recipes using culinary ingredients in addition to the four traditional brewing ingredients of water, yeast, hops, and barley. And it was true when we opened as the smallest brewery in America, '95 we have we're brewing beers like pumpkin ale and apra hop but it's still true today uh that we uh, the majority of our recipes like sequence ale with black limes and lime juice and uh slightly mighty with monk fruit are brewed outside of traditional beer styles so that was the path that we started started to to jump onto and we're really proud uh that we just uh, had our 25th anniversary and uh having a blast working with Jim and and our other co-workers.
1: Very nice. And the, and the origin, the name?
2: So yeah, so I'm up here in mid-coast Maine where I am I have a little R&D brewery at our home here. And so uh, that's the inspiration for the name. Everyone's heard of Hilton Head in the Carolinas. Our, our physical home of our facilities is in coastal Delaware. But in the summers, I grew up here in Maine. And Dogfish Head is a jut of land off of Booth Bay Harbor, Maine. Um, and I just loved how whimsical uh, the name sounded and it wasn't really tethered to geography like Delaware Brewing Company or uh, Rehoboth Beach Brewing Company. So I thought it could be a movable movable feast and a name I could take uh, nationally as we hope to grow this brand.
1: I like it and uh, the fact the Queens and Upper West Side, I lived in Queens. now I'm on the Upper West Side, so we got that com- you know the connection and both their beers are incredible. So, or all of them, since I should say uh, it's not just uh, one brew. So, you know, one of the things that's been going on in the past couple of months at the Hospitality Alliance is I've just been having all these conversations with obviously a lot of restaurateurs, busy, you know, bar owners, nightclub owners, but also with people from all different segments of the industry and really trying to figure out how is this pandemic, you know, impacted both their professional lives and their personal lives. Cause I feel like so many people, at least in the restaurant and bar space, and I imagine it's similar to your world's or, you know, they're kind of one in the same in many ways for better or worse. Um, what's your life been like Jim over the past three and a half, four months since uh, COVID uh, has kind of changed everything.
0: Yeah, it's kind of blown things up. Um, you know, we uh, quite early shut shut down. Um, and I think uh the first or second week of March because it was pretty obvious to me that, you know, this was going to be uh a, a a big catastrophe. So, um the entire company uh except for the breweries has been working you know, remotely, which I think everybody is having a new, uh, Zoom life experience that we didn't bargain for. Uh, and I think most frustrating is, uh, you know, we, we do a lot of innovation and, and, uh, as Sam is on his side, I'm very involved with, uh, that innovation, but, you know, it's not a really secure, Environment when you're doing a big communal tasting in a closed room, and you know it, it's hard to social distance and you can't wear a mask while you're drinking so it's been I, I I have to say it's been frustrating some of the things I really enjoy doing haven't been able to do travel has been really restrictive it's that's maybe been the weirdest thing' cause, um you know I've spent my entire adult life uh you know, kind of living out of a briefcase. So when I started Sam Adams, uh, I couldn't get a distributor, so uh, we had to start our own uh, distributorship in Boston. So I, the way I got into the beer business was putting cold beer in my briefcase and going from bar to bar. And I probably, I don't know, spent a couple hundred days in Manhattan because, uh, again, when I started there, I, the distributor was very skeptical and you know, wouldn't really, uh, didn't think there'd be a future for craft beer in general than Sam Adams, uh, as well. So I spent a lot of time, uh, you know, going from bar to bar in, uh, New York city and trying to get the beer launched, but more importantly, meeting a lot of people, um, really, uh, understanding and appreciating, uh, the restaurant and bar business, particularly in New York, where it's really competitive uh I mean the restaurant and bar business in New York is really a great example of the of Frank Sinatra. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere, so Very I really true. that's the part I miss.
1: Yeah, I know, I think so many people do, you know, it's a uh, a people business. Like we were saying before, it's been so odd for our industry because, you know, we are the social spaces where where people come together to socialize and now we're being told we need to be socially distant. Um and it makes it really tough. I mean, it's What 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 about you, Sam? What, what what's been going on in your life uh the past couple of months? How's uh it's been and Andrew, is it okay
0: if I get a beer while Sam answers? Oh,
1: you can get two beers.
0: All right.
2: Uh, be the designated drinker on this call. I love it. (laughs) Uh, Go get one, Jim. So, yeah, I mean, to echo Jim, you know, we're social animals. Our industry is all about connecting to people and hopefully over delicious beverages. It's a beautiful social lubricant. You know, you lose your inhibitions and get into these discussions that deepen your relationships. And also, like Jim, you know, when I started, I was the only salesperson, the only delivery guy, I would put a mattress in the back of my truck, drive over the George Washington Bridge on my way into, to the city, drop off the beer, take a cold bucket of samples around uh, to, to the great restaurants that really were on the forefront of the beer movement as so many great New York City restaurants were and then sleep in the back of the truck and i miss i miss that i miss being on the road i miss connecting with people in in person but also losing the the restaurant space you know most craft breweries sell you know between 25 and 40 percent of our beer throughout restaurants so losing those outlets is a challenge for our brands and you know for our revenue streams but more importantly. The on-premise environment, the restaurants are where innovations gain traction. You know, yes, the majority of beer sales are in uh, the off-premise areas and liquor stores and grocery stores, but by and large, that's mostly for the flagship volume-centric products. Great innovations really take hold in the restaurants and bars across America because people are willing to risk you know, a little less money for uh, a beautiful pint of beer than for a six pack or 12 pack to try new things. And they want to talk with knowledgeable bartenders and waiters and waitresses when they're trying new innovations. So that's one of the, I think, underrecognized challenges that losing the on-premise world has given to the beverage industry right now is it's really harder to have grassroots uh, interaction with consumers around new innovations that our companies make.
1: That looks good, Jim. Cheers! Uh, yeah, your cheers. No, you know you're so right. You know uh, it's it, in, especially in places like New York, but I mean it's really happened all around the, the the country and globe now that people really care about what they eat and what they drink, and you know they want to be connected, they want to understand the backstory, they want something with quality, and uh, you know restaurants and bars are a place where you're able to really showcase what you do and get the exposure. So one of the challenges just For the economy, um, you know, the restaurant industry, we talk about the economic impact. In New York City, there's more than 25,000 eating and drinking establishments employing more than 300,000 people. And that was before the pandemic. I think we've lost about 200,000 jobs or so. Hopefully, a lot of them are going to come back. But we keep saying it's not just us, you know. It's where you're getting your linen from, where you're buying your beer from. And all these other vendors to the industry are so Critical in the landscape and the kind of economic ecosystem. And Jim, before I get to my next question, I think you're right up there with one of the best uh, best takes on any of these webcasts that we've been doing. How you ask for the beer and you get up and go get it and come back and do the pour. We did a, one of these calls a couple of weeks ago uh, with Senator Chuck Schumer, and we're in the middle of it, and all of a sudden he goes. Ah! He gets a call, picks up the phone, goes, I got to run. I got to go do a vote on the floor. So he puts his mask on, runs down to the Senate floor, does a vote, comes running back. And uh, that was the beer version of uh, the Schumer vote.
2: So, <laughs> uh, God,
0: God bless him. It's a little crazy story, but uh, I met, I've known him since I was 17. Oh, wow. I met him in 1966. Uh When we were both in high school in a a program for public school kids that might someday go to ivy league schools and uh so uh we we uh ended up uh going to college together too good guy he was a good guy when he was seventeen, a little geekier um, but not not much geekier he hasn't lost that part. Yeah, no,
1: it's good. It's uh, it's great with stories like that and those old connections and then seeing where people, you know, end up uh, all, yeah. all these years later. So what about, since so you have the beer, let me ask you. So when you go into, when both of you, you know, when you go into a restaurant or a bar, well, I'll ask you what you drink, what you order later, but um, how do you assess You know, a menu, you know, when I talk with restaurateurs, they often go out and eat at other restaurants, drink at other bars, kind of see what the competition's doing, analyze all these different aspects of their menus and their operations. But from your perspective, you know, being brewers, when you go into a restaurant and bar, like what's your approach to looking at what's on the menu?
0: Well, I'll I'll jump in uh, on that, I should say. Yeah, I, I ignore the food part. (laughs) Because, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, well, my dad was a brewer, and he always reminded me, he said, Jim, remember, there's food in the beer, but there's no <laughs> beer in the food. So uh, I'll stick to the beverage menu. And the philosopher, you know, I like that. Uh, and, I, you know, one of the first things I look at is the number of, you know, I'll start with a draft, and I'll look at how many draft beers do they have, on, how many tap handles Relative to the volume that they sell. You know, if you go into a place that, you know, is probably doing five kegs of volume a week and they have 20 draft handles, I'm really scared because mm. that means those kegs on average are on uh, tap for a month, but probably the, the bottom third of them are on tap for six to eight weeks, which is too long. So I, I, I'd like to see the number of draft handles proportionate to the volume so that the consumers, you know, are getting fresh draft beer. They're not getting something that's uh, been on that line for a month or two because we all know that's just not good for the beer. And then I I think what I look for is uh, sort of variety without duplication. You know, if they've got uh, 20 draft lines but 15 of them Our local IPAs, well, that that doesn't work. You know, to me, uh, frankly, you don't need more than 10 or 15 draft lines. If you know what you're doing, you can pick the best from, you know, uh, 10 different categories and maybe the second best from five others. Uh, But, you know, you don't need like Bud Light, Miller Light, and Coors Light on tap. One of them will do. You can put the others in the bottle. So I want to Uh, you know thoughtfully constructed rather than just you know a mishmash of well the bartender likes this beer and the bar manager likes this beer and the bar back likes that beer
2: so we put them on tap yeah
1: what about you sam
2: yeah so when i go into a a bar or restaurant you know similarly to jim my eyes immediately go to the tap tower and i think first what i look for is um the array and, and usually a balance of um, larger, you know, brands of have a proven track record of quality and consistency, and the great local stuff. And I usually try to start with something that's a national recognized brand, whether whether or not they're nationally distributed, but a nationally recognized brand that's kind of earned their, earned their bona fides based on their quality and consistency. Uh, but I'd also say that I, I always look to see if it's an indie American craft beer. I really try to Stay within our community. You know it's awesome that we now have over eight thousand Indie American craft breweries in America, but collectively, all eight thousand of us share less than fourteen percent market share. So I try to make sure our money stays in that community of ours. Uh, and usually, I'll start with Bulletproof National Indie Craft brand, whether it's a Sam, a Sierra, a Dogfish, um, and then I usually my second pint, I ask the barkeep, "What's your favorite local?" Ba- beer and why and that's usually my first conversation uh with them and getting to know you know where i am through a local beer um but you know local doesn't mean quality and sometimes you get an awesome local craft beer and sometimes uh it's hit or miss and i think we as an industry have to improve on that which is again why i love seeing the variety uh not just in styles but in scales of the indie craft breweries that are represented on draft.
1: Yeah. I like to, you know, that that's a good uh, point you made too. Just, you know, when you ask, you know, like, you know, what 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 do you recommend? And I, you know, whenever I'm out eating and drinking, you know, I always try to, you know, kind of go to my favorites, but then also try to just ask and experience something new. And I think a lot of that comes down to, you know, training. So what do you do? I mean, I imagine, obviously, with your, your teams, there's a lot of training. But when you go into a restaurant or bar and you're speaking to the server, speaking with the bartender, what are some of the uh, qualities that you think make a good bartender when it comes to beer? You know, what kind of questions are they asking the customer? Um, you know, what kind of recommendations are they making based on that? Like, you know, basically, if I'm a restaurateur watching this or a bar owner right now, you know, what should I be teaching my team to make sure that they are asking the right questions and making the right recommendations when people come in?
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll start on this one. You know, as a, as a, as a person who uh, waited tables for about seven years through high school and college, I think I, I learned probably the most critical talent across whether it's fine dining or pub food is going in with an interest in, in listening uh, instead of talking immediately and really understanding what that customer is looking for. And secondarily, I think if you're in a, a place that's known to be beer centric, you need to take the time to do, to do the research. And usually it only works if you've got a true passion uh, for what you're selling. So having that passion, take the time to do the research, uh, I think is, is table stakes. If you're going to work at a beer centric account, you know, nothing frustrates me more than going to like a top 100 beer advocate rated uh, restaurant bar in the country and the person can't tell you the difference between a pale ale and an IPA uh, or they bring you the, the, the wrong thing when you ask for a certain style of beer. So the education and passion, I think, is where it starts and has to be universal.
0: Uh, what about you, Jim? You know, um, I would want my servers to uh, both be able to give a, you know, a five second description of the beer, and to be able to go uh, a little deeper if there are questions. We teach our salespeople, you know, to do that as well. So, for example, if somebody says, well, tell me about Sam Adams Boston Lager, you know, we want them to be able to say, you know, it's a big complex beer, but very balanced between the body and Mm -hmm. sweetness of the malt and the spiciness and bitterness of the hops and then if they ask more you know to be able to you know talk about noble hops from bavaria um grown for centuries in the same fields or talking about the custom roasting of the malt to make it as as smooth as possible um so i want both you know the, the education there but also the ability to summarize it in less than 10 seconds to a customer, because some people just want, you know, the brief description, yeah. and then other people want a full story. And as Sam said, you got to listen and read your customer to see, you know, how much detail they want. But make sure you can summarize it in five seconds, 10 seconds.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. You kind of meet people almost kind of where they're at and then try to go on the journey that or the experience that they want to have. If they just want to sit and talk with their friends or be on a date or whatever it is. You know, you need to be able to, uh, you know, to read that. Um, so just transitioning a little bit to, um, you know, the challenges. Again, it's hard to have any conversation with not having a focus on COVID and how it's impacting the industry. And, but I've had so many conversations. Like place in New York City, you know, there was enormous loss and devastation after nine eleven. Then we had uh, the financial collapse 2008-2009. Then we had Superstorm Sandy in 2012. And these just were devastating. But this is... A situation with COVID, unlike anything we've ever seen before. Um, And I've always had these conversations saying, you know, what have we learned from the past that we can try to apply to the future uh, or the present time? So uh, what, um, and maybe starting with Jim, you know, what kind of adversity have you faced over the years? You know, I mean, even like you were saying earlier, when you're basically just going and selling cold beer out of your briefcase, um, but what have you Experienced in the past, uh, and what kind of hurdles and adversity adversity you had to navigate through um, that you think is applicable to navigating today's
0: crisis? Well, I think first off, you know, I would build on what you said. Um, you, we, New York, uh, the East Coast—we've all been through some really tough times. We've we've all been through nine eleven. Um, We went through the financial crisis. You know, we've all had uh, in our industries um, other, ev- uh, you know, adverse events. And the one thing I take from those is, hey, we made it. You know, uh, we are craft brewers and, you know, bar and restaurant owners are resilient people. You know, you have to be. None of us would be in these businesses um, if we weren't tough, if we weren't resilient, if we weren't, you know, if we didn't have a a deep well of passion to draw on in difficult times, because small-scale brewing is tough, and so is, you know, running a bar or a restaurant. Um, My hat's off to Sam, because he uh, has done a great job running several brew pubs where you put both of those two tough things together, Um, and through that adversity, we've not only thrived, but you know, we've prospered. And so that's my first lesson is, you know, we've been through this kind of shit before. We'll probably be through it again in our lifetimes in some form. And we made it and we're going to make it through this. We are going to make it through this. Don't know how, um, don't know what it's going to look like on the other side. I don't have a crystal ball. But one thing I do know is we are going to make it through this. We wouldn't be where we are if we weren't resilient tough passionate
2: and committed
1: well said what about you sam what's good, what have you gone through in the past that you're kind of applying to today
2: yeah i mean kind of echoing what what uh jim said you know whether you're a restaurateur or, or a, a craft brewer by by definition you're a David up against the goliaths and usually the goliaths are massive global competitors But sometimes the Goliath, uh, a pandemic that you never thought you would have to face, uh, that you didn't expect to go up against. But we've got muscle memory on how to take on these challenges, whether they're competitive or, you know, existential, like what we are going through together now. I guess the other lesson that I think uh, all of us on the call as entrepreneurs know is critical is you can't let the the uh, tail uh, wag the dog, you know. Any entrepreneur, no matter how successful you are, you always go through moments where cash is tight. You know, if you're if you're investing ahead of your growth for capital, there's going to be moments where cash is tight or like you're facing a pandemic now. And if the only thing that's motivating you is making money, uh, it's going to be hard to get through those moments. But if your larger motivation is the inspiration to create something unique that inspires and captivates people, you'll figure out how the money stuff uh, we'll come to it if, if your inspiration is is pure and stays at 100%.
1: Yeah, there's that entrepreneurial spirit. I mean, it's just, you know, it's in the DNA. You know, Jim said he's said, you know, having, like, the beer and blood. You know, it's the same thing. I feel like when you're in the industry, um, you know, you're a fighter, and we will persevere. And there's going to be loss along the way, but no doubt we'll keep going. I, always, I don't know if you watch any of, like, the Rocky movies, but I think Rocky Four when he goes to Russia to fight Ivan Drago and he keeps getting hit. And hit and keep. Well, I guess he gets hit and hit at every single one of the Rockies and keeps getting up. Kind of the theme, but I feel like the industry, uh, you know, has been the same. And um, you know, it's it's not just a job for people; it's really kind of part of their personality and 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 who they are. So, you know, a lot of these conversations I'm always asked about, you know, how's the restaurant industry, the bar, the nightclub industry going to fundamentally change um, due to this pandemic? And I'm of two minds. In one sense, I think, yes, there will be changes. But at the end of the day, it's been around for hundreds of years. There's just this human nature. People like to get together, to eat, to drink, to talk, to enjoy themselves. Um, So I think those core elements will always stay the same. Will there be some changes, you know, around the edges? Will we see more, you know, contactless, you know, toilet bowls and mobile payments? Yeah, probably. But... In your industry, um, do you think that there's going to be any like fundamental changes to the way you run your business or is it more just when we get out of this, some kind of tweaks around the edges?
0: I'm thinking tweaks around the edges, Andrew. um, As you said, there is a fundamental need for people to connect socially and, um, you know, a bar is the original social network. Before there was Facebook, there were bars, uh, and, uh, and we. Uh, I guess you can look back a hundred years at prohibition. I mean, you know, COVID sucks, but yeah. prohibition was uh, a complete and unmitigated disaster for the bar and restaurant business. And guess what? You know, uh, the business came out on the other side. Prohibition ended everybody went to bars you know it was as if those that fourteen year uh long nightmare hadn't happened so um yeah I think what all of us do um, those of us in hospitality those of us um, supporting the hospitality industry with with products um, we we can uh, feel comfortable that we are meeting a fundamental and enduring human need, and maybe there will be tweaks. You know, maybe the bathrooms get cleaned more. There's more Purell um, when you menus are paper and used once, or they're in plastic and they're wiped down. I mean, we can pick up all those adaptations. The most important thing is we meet a fundamental and enduring human need. And we're going to be here.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I I would add add to that, you know, I think one of the coolest written documented components of the resiliency and creativity of the New York city uh, restaurant community is, you know, when, when things did go to lockdown and you watched the food writing in, you know, the New York times and specifically the New Yorker shift from going in and reviewing restaurants that they were sitting in to finding out the restaurants that were doing the coolest, innovative, most creative ways to do takeout, you know, take out yeah. food, take out kits from the restaurants. And I think it, it, it forces great creative entrepreneurs to be more creative. But I do think that is a trend that will mm-hmm. never go back to the percentage that it was, or it'll take decades for it to go back to that. Meaning I do think uh, that restaurants... Uh, that do a great job of innovating exciting ways to do takeout food and kits that will stay a larger percentage of their overall revenue takeout than it was uh pre COVID.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. Um, you know, someone, what was the expression? I was on a call with someone else and someone said something and it just stuck with me. It was like in the first week or two in this hit. And they said, um, paraphrasing, but they basically said, you know, you know, you can't change uh, the tires on a car when you're moving. And now that we're at a stop sign, we need to open up the hood, change the tires, you know, basically, you have time to look at your business and fix some things that maybe when you were going full speed, you couldn't. And in retrospect, you wish you would have changed. So now that we're at the Stop sign, and we got the hood open of the restaurants and the bars as it pertains to your beer selection. And you kind of alluded to it a little bit before, but. What do you think restaurants and bars should be thinking right now? When they're opening up, it's going to be a different world. We don't know when we're going to be able to open up indoors in New York City. We don't know when we're going to have full occupancy. It's going to be weird for a long time, but should restaurants and bars sit back and look at their menus and their taps? And are there any other tips in addition to what you shared before about how we should be thinking about our beers moving forward?
0: Well, I do think this, this moment of uh, – at the stop sign and with the opportunity to make a few changes um, we'll have some opportunities. I, the one that I'm going to guess is going to uh, prevail is people looking at their tap lines, knowing they're going to be doing less business for a while and asking themselves, well, do I really need 20 tap lines? Um, what, uh, and if I'm going to do less business, geez, that means I probably should be buying you know, one, six barrels rather than, you know, half barrels. So the regular size keg. Um and at that, the economics don't get that good because um, it's more expensive. So I'm, I'm going to guess that a lot of the, uh, the, you know, the smarter operators are going to cut back the number of tap handles and, and focus on the ones that are more familiar to the customers and, uh, you know, that's more sell themselves um, on the food side. I mean, I, I don't know much about food, so I'm, I'm your, your, you,
1: your beer. You know that your food is your beer.
0: <laughs> it's worked for me.
1: Hey, it's as long as it works, right? Anything yeah. else for you, Sam?
2: Yeah, I would, I would add that the same goes for the, the can and bottle uh, menu, where, again, I do think a lot of municipalities and regulatory agencies are going to allow uh, that takeout alcoholic beverage mm-hmm. to stay part of the business, uh, you know, for, for, for a long time. So being really thoughtful about what you're curating with your to-go meals, you know, restaurants that can think through awesome pairings of mm-hmm. kits they, that can allow for a one, your restaurant to be a, a one-stop shop where people don't have to stop at the liquor store or the grocery store, which will always is a competitor restaurants, if they can get both a really thoughtful and well paired meal that has the food component and the beverage component directly from the restaurants. It takes a lot of the thought out of it. And if you're known for quality and curating, people are gonna trust you to put the kits together that are equally compelling from the beverage and food side.
0: I like that. I like that. So uh, wh- hey Sam, what do you think about this one? Do You think uh, bars um, will be putting in crowler stations? And for those of you uh, you know don't aren't familiar with this idea of a crowler, um, it's something that you know we do, Sam does uh, out of our brewery tap rooms, and it's this little machine. It sits on your back bar, and you can uh, you can make a thirty-two ounce can of beer. Uh, from your your tap you get the the can you fill it with beer and the crowler uh, puts the lid on it and and tightens the seam so you can walk out of there with 32 ounces of beer with your to-go menu i i'm wondering if if bars might start uh and the crowler stations are like 600 bucks so they're not that expensive I'm wondering if we'll see some of that.
2: Yeah, I think it's a really cool idea to get a restaurant's branding on on packaged beer because you can create your own labels, and it can speak to, you know, you can tell whatever message you want as long as it has the government warning in, in small type on it, and then it allows you to talk about the freshness of your beer too and say, yeah, I've got 12 taps, but we're not just going through the volume on site. We're also letting people go home with fresh draft beer, so it keeps – your tap's fresh in-house and then allows people a pretty cool romantic thing of bringing home a kit of food with fresh draft beer that was, you know, created for you half an hour before you arrived at your home. So I do think it's a, a cool underrecognized opportunity for publicans. I like that. Yeah, that's a, that's a good
1: point. You know, there's so much in innovation, even restaurants that weren't doing takeout and delivery, you know, transitioned and started doing takeout delivery. And how do you, to the best of your ability, take that, you know, kind of in-house experience and deliver it or give it to someone for takeout. And, um, I think, you know, it's kind of all of the above and really trying to curate, um, that experience. Cause I I think, you know, even for a long time until there's a vaccine, people are going to want to have these experiences together and it may be permanent. I know my wife was doing a virtual, you know, happy hour with some of her friends this background from, uh, you know, whiskey war, there was a website where restaurants and bars could upload, um, you know, their images, people could download them and they're doing fun stuff. And maybe some of this virtual get togethers will, uh, you know, outlive the, uh, the pandemic. So before we finish up, just wanted to, talk. I know that you're, you know, both of you have been really involved in the community. What are you doing? You're hungry.
0: Yeah. Well, <laughs> This is the entree. I just had the appetizer. Uh, I like it. Uh,
1: so uh, what have you been doing just within the community, you know, with restaurants, bars, bartenders, you know, how have you just been engaging
0: and supporting throughout this? Well, one of the things that we did very quickly um, was we recognized that, uh, yeah, this was a, a, a forced and unexpected shutdown across the industry and a lot of you know, the people who work in bars and restaurants live paycheck to paycheck. And all of a sudden, you know, their income stopped. I mean, in a matter of, you know, with 48 hours notice in many cases. So um we jumped on it and we started a fund called uh Restaurant Strong because we realized that, you know, People, some people were going to be able to get unemployment and the government would pitch in, but, uh, that was going to take months. And there were people who would have immediate needs to make a rent payment or a car payment or, you know, buy, uh, you know, prescription meds for their kid. Um, so, uh, we started raising money. Um, we contributed a little over two million dollars. We raised another three million. So we've, uh, To to this point, we've distributed to bar and restaurant workers five million dollars in one thousand dollar checks for people who had urgent and immediate, uh, sometimes even like life threatening needs. Um, Because when I started, you know, as I said, I I had to go from bar to bar uh, in places like Boston, New York, uh, and I was nothing. Nobody knew who Sam Adams was um, you know I, I was just this guy coming into a bar and they didn't need me but so many people helped me just because they liked the idea uh, and they wanted to help the little guy and I, I never forgot that and I, I promised myself someday there's going to come a time when I can pay him back so this was the opportunity uh, to pay back all that kindness that people showed to me 30 years ago.
1: Wonderful. Well, thank you. We appreciate, you know, you and your team have been really supportive of us and uh, it's always great to get together, even if it's not in person and have these conversations. Listen, I just wanted to thank you, um, Jim Cook, the founder and chairman of Boston Beer Company. There's Sam uh, Caligioni from Dogfish Head Craft Brewery. Uh, We're time's up now, but it was excellent to speak with both of you. I want to thank you for everything. Stay safe. Stay healthy. This is the Hospitality and Politics podcast, and hopefully sooner than later, we'll have you all in New York, and uh, we can do this
0: in person. Well, it was fun sharing a virtual beer with you. So, you thank you for your hospitality. Ah, you're, stream, you're a good host. Thank you.
1: All righty, Jim, Sam, Cheers. so long, everyone watching. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. I'd like to give a big thank you to our guests for coming in. I want to thank everyone for listening to Hospitality and Politics, powered by the New York City Hospitality Alliance. Please rate, review, share the show with anyone you think that would like it. You can find us on Instagram and on Twitter at the NYC Alliance. We're on Facebook and LinkedIn, New York City Hospitality Alliance. And I'm your host, Andrew Riggi. And I'm at Twitter at Andrew Ridgey and Instagram, political foodie NYC. Join our movement, support the New York City Hospitality Alliance, find us,
2: thenycalliance.org. We'll talk to you next time.